Joshua next Sunday, and I'll explain more why next Sunday, why we're going to Joshua. But I want to make a point. I want to make a very clear point that I hope we all take to heart, that just because we are finished with what was maybe a series specifically, explicitly on the life and ministry of Jesus, we are not done studying Jesus. Okay, just because we're going to the Old Testament does not mean we're taking a break and looking at who Jesus is. And so before we go into and spend time studying a specific book of the Old Testament, I wanted to take a look at the Old Testament as a whole. And this was a week that I just, I really, I learned so much this week. There was stuff I rediscovered, stuff I learned for the first time. This was a week where I constantly found myself saying, wow, that is cool. Oh man, like texting my wife, like, "Hun, did you know this? Had you, had you ever put these two things together? Right? Like, this was a fascinating week, but I, I, want, I want us to spend time doing this rather than just, you know, why isn't this an email or something like that? Because I know in my own life, and maybe you're like me, there's a temptation to revisit the same books over and over and over again. Right? Like, I've, I've spent way more time in the New Testament than I have in the Old Testament. I spent way more time in Romans and Galatians and Ephesians than I have in Habakkuk or Lamentations or goodness numbers, right? When was the last time you heard someone say like, oh man, it's been great. I've been spending just like six months diving into the book of Numbers. I know I'm, I'm guilty of sometimes neglecting the Old Testament and giving an unfair balance to the New Testament. But remember in 2 Timothy, right? What did Paul write in 2 Timothy 3? He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for righteousness. All scripture. When he wrote that, the New Testament as canon was not complete. He's referencing the Old Testament. And if you look at Jesus, look at these two verses where Jesus frequently in his ministry affirmed the Old Testament. First you have Luke 24, 44. Then he, Jesus, said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The law of Moses was the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, as it's referred to. Jesus says, yeah, the Pentateuch, that's about me. The prophets, the major and the minor prophets, yeah, that's all about me. The history books, that's all about me. The poetry books, the Psalms, that's all about me. Jesus pointed to what at that time would have been Scripture for the Jewish people, the entirety of Scripture, and he said, that is all about me. It was written about me. It was written to show you me. In John 5.39, Jesus says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. And so we as the church, we as individual Christians, we can't neglect the Old Testament if we want a complete picture of Jesus because they're all about him. And so in this sermon, we are going to go through, we're going to look at every single book of the Old Testament, and we're not going to do a whole lot of unpacking of it. I, this sermon is really, my hope for this is that you come away saying, man, I had never drawn that connection before. I didn't realize that book was about Jesus. I hope that we have a renewed curiosity for, wow, I really want to go and read the entirety of Amos now. We're going to be looking at, here's Genesis, here's how it's about Jesus. Here's Exodus, here's about Jesus. So again, don't, don't necessarily worry about writing everything down. We're going to send this information out. Just, just listen and appreciate these details. So the first slide we have is the Pentateuch, the law books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In Genesis, Jesus is the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
Isaiah 53, 5 and 10, we see that Jesus is the one bruised. Romans 16, 20, Satan is the one crushed underfoot, where his head is crushed underfoot. Ephesians 1, 9 through 10, this has always been the plan. Revelation 20, 1 through 4 and 7 through 10, again, demonstrate that Jesus is the one who was bruised and then crushes the head of the serpent. John 12, 27 and 31, now is my soul troubled. This is Jesus speaking. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. That prophecy back in Genesis, Jesus and John is saying, this is the time for the fulfillment of that. This is the time when the head gets crushed. In Exodus, Jesus is the Passover lamb offered once for our sins. If you read the entirety of chapter 12 of Exodus, you see in verse 5, the lamb without blemish. In verse 7 and verse 13, that the blood of the lamb shall be the sign. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 1 Peter 1.19 shows that Jesus is the lamb without blemish, as in verse 5. Hebrews 9.14 talks about how the blood of the lamb purifies, like in verses 7 and 13 of Exodus. In Leviticus, Jesus is the high priest who intercedes for his people. Leviticus 16.16-17. 16, 16 Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place, the high priest. Thus the holy priest shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanliness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he has come out and made atonement. So Leviticus this big book, right? This boring book. That's where all the laws are. That's the book that when you get to in your annual reading plan, you know, you're going through and you're tempted to skip through Leviticus because you're like, okay, what does this have to do with Jesus? Well, it's all about the laws. You see the high priest demonstrated. You see the need for atonement. You see the need for sacrifice, for purification of our uncleanliness. And then we get to Hebrews, Hebrews 7, 28. I'm sorry, Hebrews 7, 22 through chapter 8, verse 2. Hebrews 7, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. See, the priests back in Leviticus, they died. Their office was not eternal. Their individual office was not eternal. That's talking about the priests in Leviticus. Now let's look at the priest who is Jesus. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained. Unstained, that goes back to Exodus. Separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests in Leviticus to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law, Leviticus, appoints men in their weaknesses as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Leviticus is all about pointing to Jesus, our high priest. You have Numbers, Numbers 21 through 13. 
You see Moses, you see the people of Israel struggling for life, desperate for life in the wilderness. What are we going to do? We have no shot of sustainability here. We need sustenance. We need nourishment. And Moses smites the rock and water comes out of the rock. Jesus is that smitten rock who provides living water. John 4, 10 through 14, the woman at the well, Jesus is talking to her and he says, I am the living water. 1 Corinthians 10, 4, all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. Isaiah also refers to Jesus as the one smitten. So in Numbers, Jesus is the smitten rock that provides life. He's present throughout the Pentateuch. And finally, you have Deuteronomy. The book, uh, do you know Deuteronomy is the book most quoted in the New Testament? Jesus quotes Deuteronomy more than any other book in the Old Testament, what we refer to as the Old Testament, what they would have just known as scriptures. Deuteronomy, Jesus is the prophet written about. He is the perfect Moses. Moses is a foreshadowing of Jesus. Jesus, in 18, 15 through 19, Moses' writing says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. In John 1, 43 to 45, Jesus talks about this. And then again, 546, he says, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Hebrews 3, 3 through 4, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has, more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. The Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it's all about Jesus. It's pointing to the need for a Savior. It's pointing to the Savior who will come, who will make atonement. And I want to make this point now, and I'll make it again at the end. But keep these things in mind, because where my fellowship with God, where my appreciation of the Bible, my studying of the Bible, one of the most pivotal moments for me came when I began studying the Bible from the perspective of, okay, where do I see Jesus? And that transformed the Old Testament for me. When I approached every book with that idea of, okay, I'm reading this to come away with a deeper appreciation of Jesus to see a picture of Jesus, the perfecter of our faith, the one who I am called to be transformed into continually. So as we're reading the Bible on our own, I want you guys, I want to encourage you, if you struggle with the Old Testament at times, and some of the books are a lot of fun, right? Like when I was in, in junior high, we loved reading through Kings, First and Second Kings, because it was just battles. Every page was a sword fight. And that was exciting. And then I got a little bit older, and it was like, okay, I don't want to spend as much time in, you know, Song of Solomon, that's kind of an awkward book. No, it's about Jesus. And so as we approach the Old Testament, please do so with the understanding that it's about Jesus and that our call in all of this must be to know him better. Next, you have the history books. We come out of the Pentateuch and we come into the history books. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. First, you have Joshua, and we see Jesus is the commander of the army of the Lord. We'll get to this when we get to our series on Joshua. But let me read these verses. Verse five, or chapter 5, 13 through 15. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. 
And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped him and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Ah, well, maybe that's just an angel. Angels are referred to as, you know, having places in God's army. Well, we're about to look at Revelation. We're going to see how an angel responds when somebody tries to worship them. Consider that in the other places where angels appeared to people in Scripture, they were not commanded to take off their sandals for the, for the ground was holy. This is Jesus that Joshua sees in chapter 5. And we go to Revelation 19, 10 through 16. John fell down at his feet to worship the angel speaking to him. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is in Joshua. Judges. Jesus is the great and final judge. The theme of judges is that the people have sinned. They cannot save themselves. God has mercy and sends a judge to save them from their enemies. Josh, uh, judges 2, 16 and 3, 9. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer from the people of Israel who saved them. Consider this passage in Luke 1, 68 to 75. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant and the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days." Judges is all about Jesus. Then you have Ruth. Jesus is the heavenly kinsman redeemer. If you read the story of Ruth, that's the centerpiece of this story, that Boaz is the kinsman redeemer who makes Ruth his bride. Isaiah 54, 5, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called God of the whole earth. In First and Second Samuel, Jesus is the anointed one of God. He is prophet, he is priest, and he is king. 1 Samuel 16, 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. You know, Jesus' last name is not Christ. That, that's not a first name, last name, Jesus Christ. Christ is a title that means the anointed one. Luke 4, 18. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, Jesus, he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. What we see in First and Second Samuel is foreshadowing Jesus. First and Second Kings, Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. We just read Revelation 19, 16. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And contrast his reign to the reign of earthly kings. First and Second Kings, the battles that I loved as a seventh grader. It was all about Jesus. 
First and second Chronicles, Jesus said, this one was cool. This was, this was one of the ones where I'm texting Addy and I was like, whoa, check this out. Like I'm, I'm geeking out in my office over this. First and second Chronicles, Jesus is the glory of the temple of God. Second Chronicles 7, 1 through 3. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Hebrews 1.3 so Chronicles, all about the glory of the temple of the Lord, right? The glory of God in the temple. Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know the word for dwelt there literally means tabernacled? Jesus tabernacled among us. John 2, 18 through 21. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He was speaking about the temple of his body in verse 21. Revelation 21, 22. And I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. That was, that was fascinating to learn that Chronicles is all about Jesus. I mean, that, that was, right, like, hands up if you'd put those two together before. I certainly hadn't. That's why I love this week, because it was such a reminder of the richness and the fullness of God's Word. Ezra. Ezra is all about teaching and establishing right worship. In chapter 7, you specifically see this, that Ezra's ministry was to teach and establish right worship. Matthew 7, 28 through 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd were astonished at his teaching. For his teaching was as one who had authority and not as scribes. In John 4, going back to the woman at the well, Jesus talks about no true worship. In Ezra, Jesus is the perfect teacher. In Nehemiah, Nehemiah is all about rebuilding for God's glory, restoration for God's glory. Nehemiah is all about Jesus because Jesus is the one who rebuilds and restores. He is our fortress. 1 Peter 2, 5 through 6, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Revelation 21 talks about the new holy city where worship will be restored properly, finally. Acts 3.21, Ephesians 4.23 and 24, Colossians 1.19-22. Jesus is the one who rebuilds and restores. In Esther, Jesus is the protector of his people. This whole book foreshadows Jesus as the intercessor and deliverer of his people. Look at chapters 7 and 8 in Esther. They're all about an intercessor who protects and saves and delivers the people. 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. We could have also read Hebrews 7.22-8, through 8, which we already read that talked about Jesus as the one who constantly intercedes on our behalf. The history books in the Old Testament are entirely about pointing to Jesus. 
Then you come to the poetry books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Job, this was another cool one. Jesus is the perfect Job. Job is foreshadowing Jesus. First, in Job 1.8, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. In Job 1, remember I said Jesus is the perfect Job. Job is not Jesus. Job is a foreshadowing of Jesus to come. In Job 1, Job is held up as the most righteous man on earth. We know that Jesus is perfectly righteous, purely righteous. The only one so, the perfection of Job. Job 16.10 I mean, this is cool. Job 16, 10, men have gaped at me with their mouth. They have struck me insolently on the cheek. They mass themselves together against me. So Job 16, 10, in his suffering as the righteous man, he talks about how the crowd gathered around me mocks me and smacks me in the face. Matthew 27, 40, or Matthew 26, 67, then they spit in Jesus's face and struck him on the cheek and some slapped him. Job is foreshadowing Jesus. Job 13, 24, Job talking to God, he says, Why do you hide your face from me? Why have you abandoned me and count me as your enemy? Matthew 27, 46, In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Job is foreshadowing Jesus. Psalms, my goodness, we could have done a whole sermon on Psalms. Psalms is, is so easy to see Jesus. Psalm 22, one of the best messianic psalms ever written. Fascinating. If you've never really studied Psalm 22, dive into it. It talks about the bulls of Bashan have encircled me. You know their nickname was the soldiers of the field? It talks about my side is pierced, I am poured out like water. It's what happened to Jesus on the cross. Psalm 22 is all about Jesus. Psalm 23 is all about Jesus. I mean, Psalms is, is just Jesus start to finish. Proverbs, Jesus is the wisdom of God. Listen to Proverbs 1, uh, Proverbs 1, 1 through 7. Why Solomon wrote, and Solomon wasn't the only one, but this book was written to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. Proverbs was written for the purpose of wisdom. It's why this book was written. Jesus is the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1.30, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Colossians 2.2-3, 2, 2 That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and of understanding in the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ, in whom, so in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus is the perfection of Proverbs. Ecclesiastes, one of the most emo books of the Bible, it seems, on the surface. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. No, Ecclesiastes, in my mind, is one of the most joyful books of the Bible. Because it's saying, look, I've searched everything, I've tried everything, and everything apart from Jesus is pointless. There is no truth in everything I searched for. In, Song of Sol er, in Ecclesiastes, Jesus is the only search of meaning. John 15, 10 through 11, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be fulfilled. In Ecclesiastes, nothing brings me real joy. 
In John, Jesus says, I am real joy. I am the fullness of joy. Ecclesiastes is pointing to the need for Jesus. In Song of Solomon, Jesus is the bridegroom coming for his bride. Song of Solomon is a love song, a ballad between a bride and a bridegroom. John 3.29, the one who has the bride, Jesus, is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John the Baptist is saying, why do you want to put attention on me? I'm a friend of the bridegroom. My joy is complete because the bridegroom, Jesus, is standing right here. Revelation 19.7, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. In Song of Solomon, Jesus is the bridegroom. We are the bride. Then we come to the major prophets. Again, Isaiah. This book is, I mean, if you've been in church, even if you haven't grown up in church, even if you don't spend a lot of time in church, if you have attended a church service in December, I guarantee you, you've heard Isaiah. Isaiah 53, Jesus is the mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, suffering servant, pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Isaiah is clearly about Jesus. In Jeremiah, Jesus is the potter that shapes the clay of our lives into his own image. He is also the guarantor of the new covenant. One of the themes of Jeremiah is that God's people grieve him with their sin, but God is faithful and will provide restoration and salvation. We've already established that the restoration referenced in the Old Testament is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Jeremiah 31, 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Hebrews 7, 22, Jesus is the guarantor of this new covenant. Jeremiah is pointing to Jesus. In Lamentations, Jesus is the weeping prophet. Isaiah 53, 3 tells us that Jesus is a man of sorrow, well acquainted with grief. With grief. In Lamentations 3, 49 to 51, my eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. Jeremiah, who wrote Lamentations, he's looking at Jerusalem and he's weeping, he's grieving over the fate of Jerusalem, lamenting Jerusalem. Luke 19, 41 to 44, when Jesus drew near and saw Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And Luke, Jesus is the prophet who is weeping, lamenting over Jerusalem. In Ezekiel, Jesus is the man of fire who rules from his heavenly throne. Ezekiel 1, 26 through 28, or 8, 2, both referencing the same man. Ezekiel says, Then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of man. Behold, below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. In Revelation 19, we looked at how Jesus shines the fire in his eyes. Colossians 2, 9, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus is in Ezekiel. Daniel, Jesus is the Son of Man. He is the one who comes in clouds of great fire. He is the fourth man in the furnace. Daniel 2, 34 through 36, talks about the earthly kingdoms as a statue. It's a vision that Nebuchadnezzar has in Daniel 2, and he sees this statue that represents earthly kingdoms. And then he sees a stone, and it describes the stone as a stone that no human hands made, a stone that does not come from origins of this world, and it crushes the statue representing the kingdoms. 
We've already looked at how Jesus is described as a stone, as a cornerstone. But more than that, in Matthew 21, 43 through 44, Jesus is described as the divine stone that crushes earthly kingdoms. In Daniel 7, 13 through 14, is one such reference to Jesus as the Son of Man. This is a title that Jesus used for himself constantly throughout the Synoptic Gospels. I am the Son of Man. In Daniel 9, 24 through 25, it talks about an anointed one who must atone for our iniquity. We've already established that Jesus is the anointed one. He is the Christ who atones for our iniquity. The book of Daniel is entirely about Jesus. Then you come to the minor prophets. Hosea. Hosea is all about Hosea being led into this behavior that makes no sense to the people around him because he's obeying God. And on first glance, you read through Hosea and you're like, what? Where is Jesus? Well, Jesus is the love of God to the wayward sinner. There's a theme of redemption throughout Hosea. Jesus is that redemption. Listen to Hosea 2, 16 through 20. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the, mouths of the, or the names of Baal from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfastness, love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. We've already established that Jesus is the one we are betrothed to. Jesus is the redemption. Jesus is the faithful love. You have Matthew 9, 15. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with her? Ephesians 5, 32, talking about marriage. Paul writes, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In Joel, Jesus is the giver of the Spirit who blesses and judges his people. Jesus sits on the throne of judgment. Jesus restores. Jesus saves. Read through Joel, and you'll see all the themes we've been talking about. In Amos, Jesus is the prophet the crowds didn't expect and dismissed. Amos 5.10 says, They hate him who reproves, they abhor him who speaks the truth. Look at how they responded to Jesus. Just like Jesus is the perfection of Job, Jesus is the perfection of Amos. In Amos 8.9, God foretells a day when he will cause the sun to go down at noon and darken the earth during broad daylight. What happened when Jesus was on the cross? The sun went down at noon. God darkened the earth in the middle of broad daylight. Amos 7, 12 through 16 shows how Amos didn't fit the mold of what the people expected of a prophet. So they questioned if he was really from God and they rejected him. Mark 6, 1 through 3, he went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus is the perfection of Amos. In Obadiah, make no mistake, you know, when we think of Jesus, you think of a painting of Jesus, right? Get, get, get in your minds an image of the, the Jesus. You got a lamb in his hand patting the children on the head. And he is. He's gentle. He's meek. He's mercy. He's kindness. He's goodness. Make no mistake, Jesus is holy wrath. Jesus is holy righteous anger. He is the rod of iron. He is the sword. 
In Obadiah, we see that Jesus is the Lord of vengeance. The theme of Obadiah is that just punishment is coming for those who reject the Lord. Verse 18, the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 8, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Obadiah is foreshadowing the righteous judgment of Jesus. In Jonah, Jesus is the compassion that offers salvation to all who believe. Jonah 3.10 and 4.11, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And then later when Jonah questions God's behavior, God replies, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? God has compassion on the people and those who believe he saves. Mark 6, 34, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Acts 10, 34, 43, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And then in 43, to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Jonah is all about foreshadowing the gospel of Jesus. In Micah, Jesus is the one whose origins are from old. He is our great intercessor, which we've already looked at. Read Micah 3. Do me a favor. Read Micah 3 and then read Matthew 23. Look at the parallels in those two speeches then read Micah 4 and consider what we read in Revelation about Jesus' imminent rule. Then read Micah 5 and consider what we've looked at about Jesus. I mean, Micah is, every single chapter is about Jesus. Then in Nahum, Nahum we see that Jesus is our stronghold in days of trouble. Nahum 1.7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. The Lord is a refuge. He knows those, that, that personal, intimate knowledge. I know those who are mine. John 10, 14, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. In Habakkuk, Jesus is the glory of the Lord that will fill the earth and the one who judges and threshes. Habakkuk 2.14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Remember, we've already established that Jesus is the glory of the Lord. Habakkuk 2.14 says, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Matthew 24.30, Then there will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Habakkuk 3.6 and 12-13, He stood and measured the earth. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked. We've already established that Jesus is the one who crushes the head of the house of the wicked. Matthew 3.12, all that passage in Habakkuk also talked about threshing and judging. Matthew 3.12, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. 
Revelation 19.15, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God the Almighty. Habakkuk is all about foreshadowing Jesus. Zephaniah, Jesus is our Savior and hope for the day of the Lord. Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. We've established that Jesus is the one who saves. Haggai, Jesus is the coming glory and will usher in what cannot be shaken. Haggai 2, 7 through 9. I will shake all nations so that the treasure of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. I will shake the nations and then I will usher in what cannot be shaken. Hebrews 12, 24 through 29. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, into the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that things cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving from heaven a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Haggai is all about Jesus. In Zechariah, Jesus is the branch. He is the coming king. He is the one pierced. He is the struck shepherd. I mean, Zechariah refers to Jesus over and over and over again. Zechariah 6, 12 through 13, and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. Zechariah 9, 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah 12.10, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. When they look on the one they have pierced, they will mourn, recognizing what they have done. Mark 15, 29, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. 13, 7 in Zechariah, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me. The shepherd is struck. In Zechariah 13, we know that Jesus is struck. We know that Jesus is the good shepherd. Zechariah 14, 9, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. And then finally, we come to Malachi. Jesus is the refiner's fire and the one who rises with healing in his wings. Malachi 3.2, Who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. 1 Peter 1.6-7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 1 talks about this. Isaiah 48 talks about this. Hebrews 12, Revelation 3. Malachi 4, 2. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Son, S-U-N, the Son of Righteousness. 
Revelation 1.16 describes Jesus. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. The sun of righteousness with healing in his wings. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Malachi is pointing to Jesus. And that's the Old Testament.